still in our series in Romans. Um, again, not ashamed of good news. We still continue to believe that God and his word holds the good news for our lives and that we need not be ashamed. And if you remember, Paul is writing to the church in Rome. It's a church and a culture very similar to probably what we would find today. People that are not Jewish, many of them, some of them are, some of them were not raised in the faith. And Paul is writing to them because there's this sense of shame. There's this sense of how do I do life when it seems like there's just trials and problems and I do the right thing and it just leads to maybe things that I didn't think should happen to me. And so Paul is writing and saying that this is good news that we have because there's a world that you step out into that isn't deceived by the trappings of the things that we have around us. Remember, in Rome, they would have had the top of everything in the world. All the trade routes in the world came to Rome. It was all about Rome. It was, they were at the top of the food chain, so to speak, of world empires. And so for you to say that there was a need that they had, that would have been laughable. They're like, we're in charge. What, what needs do we have? And, and so Paul is writing, and if you remember, he tells them in Romans 1, 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the good news about who God is and his plan for the world. Even though that news would go against maybe what the Romans thought was good news, he says, because it is the power, or it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Again, that God said that there's only one way to be saved, and that's to be his people. And that started with him making a covenant, making promises with the Jews, starting with Abraham, and then that moving to Jacob, and that moving to Jacob's 12 sons, and then that moving to David, who was a part of that line, and then to Jesus, and all the way through. And he says, and, and God has now opened this up for, for Greeks, for Romans to be adopted, for you and I who aren't Jewish to be adopted into God's family. In verse 17, he says, for in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, we live in a world where we say, what is right? I don't know what to do half the time. What is the right thing to do? And he says, well, the right thing is to trust God by faith. It's to look at God's promises in the Old Testament, to see what God did and where people were not ashamed and they lived for him, and then to live for him not ashamed of what you know God has said would happen. That's faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, the righteous don't live by works. We don't live by trying to do all these good things and then we can say, see, look how right I am. We live by saying the only way I'm right is if I'm with him, if I'm with Jesus. If I'm in him, if I'm, if I'm walking with him, then even though it may not seem like the circumstances of my life are looking right, they're, they're working out the way I want, I can trust that I am right because he's right. Not because I'm trying so hard, but because he's doing it through me. And this morning, what I want us to look at is not ashamed of hope. Not ashamed of hope. You know, this is something that I think is a problem right now. If you're a person that's walking around with a lot of hope and joy and, and gladness right now, it's like people almost despise you. Maybe you even ask the question, should I have this hope when I know that people around me have like lost loved ones? And should I talk about my friend that didn't, get, that didn't die of the disease or my grandfather that didn't pass away when I see that this person's grandfather did? How, how do I know where hope lies, because if we're really honest, you and I oftentimes define our hope by our circumstances. 
We look around and we say, okay, if the circumstances match, then, then I have hope. See, there's hope because I'm doing the right thing because my circumstances are turning out the way that I want them to be. And oftentimes what I'll do, you'll do it too, is that we'll go to God and we'll tell God, God, this is my hope and I want you to approve of it. This is the hope I have. This is what I want. This is what I want you to do. And so I'm going to be good. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to make a deal with you and I'm going to hope for this thing I want. And I'm not even really going to ask if it's really the thing you want me to have. I'm just going to say it is and then I'm going to go for it. And then we get it and we think, oh, God was with me. And then God takes it away and we go, what did I do wrong? See, our hope the whole time was in the wrong thing. It wasn't in the person of God. It was in what we could get from him. Now, does God want us to, to find hope in him as our provider, our, our, our healer? Yes. He wants us to come to him, but he wants us to trust him for his hope. You know, sometimes people become hopeless and they just give up. They say it's, it's, it's hopeless. And, and God's like, it's not hopeless. You live in a world that is hopeless. That it's guaranteed that it's going to perish. This week, I've been, doing, uh, I've been doing some real dad things this week, you know, like the dad jokes. I've been watching documentaries. So I love documentaries. I used to be that weird kid in school that like when it was movie time and documentary, I wasn't sleeping. I was taking notes. I was a history major in college. I mean, I love that kind of stuff. So this week, I was watching a documentary on Mount St. Helens just for the fun of it. Like, and you're thinking, Why? like a two-hour documentary on Mount St. Helens. It was fascinating. And I, I had watched it before. I remember watching it a long time ago, but there are parts of it I'd forgotten. And so I, I went back and watched it, right? And it was amazing to me that as I'm preaching this message on hope, and as you look at what people were hoping for in that moment with Mount St. Helens, you know, most people thought it was going to be this eruption, and it was going to build up. And then, and then actually what happened was everything stopped for about a week. It was building up, looking like there was an eruption. They evacuated everybody. This is going to happen. Everybody clear out. And then it, the mountain itself, Mount St. Helens, calmed down. And they thought, oh, we're good. And so they begin to let people go back in and get stuff from their homes. They didn't let them move back in, but go back in. And there was even one man who refused to, to leave the side of the mountain that he lived on, that he had staked his property and his life on. He was an older man, and he said, I'm not leaving. This mountain's been good to me. I'm going to trust in the mountain. And, and kids were writing him cards. This is 1980. Kids were writing him letters telling him, please leave. We're scared for you. They had a letter-writing campaign around the country trying to get this guy to move off the mountain. And instead of moving off, he would go visit the kids in their classrooms and talk to them and tell them that I'm not scared and blah, blah, blah. And then he'd go back to his mountain. In the meantime, there was a man who was giving a warning. There was a scientist who was taking pictures and he was watching and he was surveying and he was watching the side of the mountain begin to grow and move. And he was warning and saying, it's not sleeping. It's being shaken up like a bottle and it's going to explode. And people are like, oh, you're, you're doom and gloom. You're worried. It's, it's not going to, it'll be fine. They even sent survey team. Like, they got, they just kind of backed off. They got lackadaisical. It's not going to happen. And then all of a sudden, in an instant, out of nowhere, Mount St. Helens erupted, and it erupted bigger than they ever thought it could. The entire side of the mountain blew out. Six miles was the, was the blast zone. Six miles, leveled everything. 
the heat from the blast just going through it all. It, it was the most, dev- it went up and the cloud went away and there's stories of people that were like on the other side of the mountain that just missed the blast zone. A man was camping with his family and just hoping that they would survive. And he did, barely. And there's pictures of him with his daughter and they're black and they're trying to smile in the midst of the struggle and a helicopter found them and got their family out. And it can be hard for survivors. It can be hard. And that's one of the things that people said that survived is that like they felt guilty that I survived and they didn't. I felt guilty that I went in and got my stuff and got out, but there were people that went in that didn't get out. That the, the authorities said you could go in and they were killed on that day. You see, this idea of hope is really important. And if we don't find our hope in who God is, we're going to be in trouble. And if we find a false hope, if we find a hope in license that says, well, God will have mercy, he'll take care of everything, Whatever you do, God will take care of it. He loves me. He wants me to be happy. I'm not worried about it. Or a false hope in legalism that says, I have a hope in God's justice that he's going to do what's right. and He's going to do what I think he should do. And he's going to measure up to my standards. And everybody else should too. And you better buckle up because you're going to be miserable. You see, we've got to be unashamed of the hope of the good news of what Scripture says about our world. And we need not apologize for God, but point people to him. And point people to the fact that, you want to know what your hope's in and my hope is? My hope isn't in heaven. It is. But that's not what my hope is. I have a present hope in a relationship with the God of the universe. It's not a past hope. It's not a future hope. It is a present hope in who he is. Based on the fact that he's been faithful in the past and I can trust him in the future. But it is a present hope. It's not a, well, I hope when I die someday I'll go to heaven. And it's not a, well, God's taking care of people in the past, so he'll take care of me the way I want to be taken care of. That's a false hope. It's a hope in who he is and what he takes us through. Romans 15.1 says this, Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weakness of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Each one of us must please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Messiah did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, that's in the past, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. See, this is why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to to gain hope. He came to display it. He he didn't come and bring a, a new hope. He came and brought the hope, the hope that was promised through the whole Old Testament. He he came to say the hope is in who God is, not in the circumstances that we have, and he says, if you understand that, then what's going to happen is you're going to look to bear the burdens of others because you understand that your burdens are in Christ and you don't, you're, not, you're not bound by the circumstances of your life. You're looking to say, God, I am so pleased in you. I am so hopeful in you. I am so trusting in you that I don't need anything. I'm grateful for whatever you provide. I'm not afraid to ask you to provide for things. But at the end of the day, I know that if I have you, I have everything. See, that's that's the hope of Christianity. That's the hope that Paul's writing about when he writes this book. And it's why he says, for his good and to build him up. In other words, what's really good? Is it really good to give an addict 
what they want? Is it really good to continue to to help them have their addiction? Or is it good to stand up to it and say, this isn't building you up, it's tearing you down? And when I say addict, we automatically think, right, of like hard drugs, heroin, alcohol, you know. I'm talking about those of us who are addicted to whatever it is. We all have things that we tend to be addicted to. They're the things that we go to to find a piece of hope. Could be going out in the woods. Could be going for a drive. Going shopping. Ice cream in the fridge. It, I mean, we, we have these things that we run to to feel a sense of I'm alive. There, there's hope for me. And it's not wrong. It's just we have to be careful that those things don't become the things that take the place of God himself, and even people that we begin to hope in. Because he says, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. See, Jesus was rejected because the hope he brought, the hope he explained, nobody wanted. They looked and said, you didn't bring the right hope. We've been praying for 400 years since the book of Malachi was written. God's people had been in captivity and they had been praying that God would deliver them from their rulers and their authorities, that they wouldn't have to be under anybody anymore, under the Romans. They'd be free. They would get their land back. They would have Jerusalem back. They would build the temple that Solomon built, even with more splendor. They believed that the Messiah was going to come back, bring his hope by killing all the Gentiles, eliminating them all, and not... And and saying, we're on top. That's what they believed. They taught it for 400 years. How could you be wrong for that long? Now, was there a remnant who didn't believe that? Yes. And that's where we pick up the Christmas story. You see, when Christ came, and we've been looking at this the last couple of weeks, when Christ came, there were people, there was a remnant of people that were looking for real hope. They hadn't settled for a false hope. The shepherds were one of those that Jesus came to or that the angels came to to tell them about the baby Jesus. The wise men came from afar. But there's two other people that we read about in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus at eight days old is taken to, to Jerusalem, to the temple, to be circumcised, which was the tradition of the Old Testament. Jesus' parents and Jesus himself followed every Old Testament law, not to prove something, but to show that I love God, and this is what he says to do, and so I want to do it because I love him. And so Jesus is walking through the Jewish Old Covenant, and they go to the temple, and look in Luke chapter 2, verse 28. It says, Simeon took him up in his arms. Simeon was a servant in the temple, a very old man who had been in the temple. He took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about this baby Jesus. He's going to be a light. Hanukkah's this week. Celebrating Hanukkah, the, the idea of the lights in the temple and the light not going out. And when Jesus comes, Simeon says, you know, we've got the lights in the temple right now. He's in the temple. we got the lights in the temple right now. This kid's the light. This kid's the one I've been waiting for. This is the one my whole life I've been longing for. And I didn't think there was any hope. I didn't think necessarily that God would let me see this. And he let me see Jesus. And I've got to let the world know. I've got to hold him up like Simba in The Lion King. This is Simeon in the temple. He's like, woohoo, and the music starts. And you know, 
the circle, and he's, no, no, that's it, right here. That's what's happening. They stole that in the lion's, from Simeon. Simeon should have been the monkey. That's what this is. All the good stories we love are stolen hope from Scripture. And Simeon's holding this baby up. He's like, this is it. And his parents are like, that, we didn't really expect that to happen, right? And he's like, this is the hope of the world. And everybody had to be like, what is he talking Crazy old Simeon. Guy's been in here just serving in the temple, putting all his hope in some Messiah that's going to come who hasn't come for 400 years, and now he thinks this baby's the Messiah. Why? Because he's going to die soon anyway. Well, we'll just let him have his little hope. You know, he's probably a little crazy. It's fine. Simeon was right. He was dead on. And not only Simeon, look what happens after this. Someone else steps up. It says, then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel. Like, wait, that's not hope. Fall and rise. Which side am I on, the fall or the rise side? And then he says, and to be a sign that will be opposed. Okay, so Simeon picks up the baby. He says, this is my hope. I have been longing for, and everyone's going to oppose him. Here's your child back. Have a great life. That's literally what happens in this moment. And he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul, Mary and Joseph. This hope that you have, what I'm telling you right now, this hope is going to seem like not hope. Because the world is going to fight this hope that's come. And then he says, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. In other words, he is going to lay bare our hearts to show us what we really hope in. Do do we really hope in him and the message of the cross and the good news of what God says about who he is, or are we hoping in something else? And then at that moment, another woman steps up. It's Anna. Anna is a widow. She's been serving her, her last days in the temple, going and praying and loving God and waiting for the Messiah as well. And it says... At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. She hears Simeon. She's like, me and Simeon have been praying for this. And if Simeon thinks he's the Messiah, maybe he's the Messiah. And then she believes. And then she goes out and she is telling everyone. She is unashamed of the hope. Here's this old lady going out saying, I have found the Messiah. It's in this baby. And everybody would have went, it's a baby. Baby can't like bring swords. They're just, let's give it a few years. Don't be so excited. Right? No. This is the Messiah. This is the one who's to come. And you know, at this moment, it must have been a moment in the temple of confusion must have been like, what is going on? And so here we are at a critical moment, at a critical juncture, where it's like this baby is the most important child ever born on the face of the planet. So now what? The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. He disappears for 30 years. That's what happens. Hope of the world shows up in the temple. The light of the world shows up. He's raised up like Simba. And just like Simba, he goes and he goes to do his Akuna Matata and disappears for 30 years. Right? Only Simba was sinning. Jesus never sinned. He went and he obeyed. He modeled to us what it looks like. And why did he wait till he was 30? Because you couldn't become a priest until you were 30. That was the biblical mandate. He was following the Old Testament law perfectly. Perfectly. 
He was doing everything his father asked him to do because his full hope was in his heavenly father, not his earthly circumstances. He went back and didn't go to Rome and live in Rome. He went back and lived in Nazareth, the armpit of the Roman Empire. He didn't go and try to become a a Rhodes Scholar. Not wrong to become a Rhodes Scholar. He just became a construction guy, a, a carpenter to work took care of his family. He did simple things. And he was filled with wisdom and God's grace was on him. If you want to truly find your hope in Jesus and if you find your hope in Jesus, people will know. And if they don't know, then you're finding your hope in someone else, in someone or something else. Guaranteed. And in Christianity, we love to spin the word God and put God on little things that happen, which he does do little things. But do we really stop for a minute and say, wow, this little thing that happened to me, it's great, but man, my hope is in something even greater. And I'm grateful for this thing, and I'm really thankful to you, God, for this, but I recognize that this is just temporary. It's going to break, it's going to fall apart, it's not going to last, and you are, but I'm thankful for a little picture of what you're going to do. And let's be honest, we love to show off what our hope is about. Welcome to social media. Social media will show you what your hope is about. What my hope is for the weekend, what my hope is for the, what I hoped in for the trip and how it turned out, what I hoped in and how it didn't turn out. That's just what we do, it's just just showing us what we believe and hope in. In Romans 15, it goes on, it says, for whatever was written in the past, so all the Old Testament, was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. It doesn't say from encouragement from our circumstances. It doesn't say that we might have hope because it's all working out well for us. Anna was a widow in the temple. She was on literally government assistance serving in the temple praying every day. That was her job. She was being supported by the offerings that were given to the temple. That was who she was as a widow. She had no future left. No man was going to marry her. When she decided to be put on the dole to be a widow, that means you're stuck on it. You can't get off of the dole. Simeon, the same thing, being a servant, giving his life coming to the end of his life and finding hope, not in that his life will be extended, but finding hope in the fact that he can now die because he can tell people about the hope that he got to see. And so the question is, do we want to have this kind of faith that has endurance and encouragement, not from our circumstances, but from the actual scriptures God has written? Do we find our hope and our endurance and our encouragement from God's word or do we find it when God does what we think he should do? Listen, it's easy to get that twisted. He goes on and he says in verse five, now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement allow you to live in harmony with one another according to the command of Christ Jesus, according to the Messiah who is Yahweh who saves, so that you may glorify God and Father of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with a united mind and voice. In other words, he says, what really is at the center of our quarrels and our fights and all these problems is the wrong hope. 
We have these hopes, and it's not a hope that I can give my life for someone else. Remember, Jesus came from heaven to earth, and he had the hope of living his life so that he could give his life for his people and for us. He knew he wasn't getting out alive. That's, otherwise, he wouldn't have came. <laughs> he just stayed in heaven. He knew that he was going to come and give his life, and that was to the glory of the Father. And he knew that by doing that, it would bring the opportunity for us to be united around who he was, the actual hope. He knew that if he did that, then we could then be encouraged to find encouragement and endurance from his life and from the lives of the people that lived before that brought him to this earth, and that we can trust him for the endurance and the encouragement of what's going to come someday. That's exactly this hope that Paul is writing about. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are, all, or we are of all people most pitied. In other words, if we have accepted Jesus, if we've asked God, if we've said we need a Messiah so that I can have this, 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 and this, so that he can bring this, 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 and this for me, Paul says, if that's your mentality, you should be pitied. The world should pity us. Because the story of God's people is God's people following him, and it always ended up in a mess at some point. It may not be in your generation. It may not be in your lifetime, but your great-great-grandchildren may be going to war. May be enslaved. That's the story of humanity. And Paul says, if we've only hoped in the Messiah for this life, then we're in trouble. Anna and Simeon were hoping in the Messiah for the life to come. They're like, we're old, we're gonna die, we're not gonna see how this kid's gonna turn out, he's just a baby. It's okay, we're ready. That, that's the same faith that we're supposed to have. When we don't see how it's going to turn out, but we believe the promises that the Messiah will do what he said he will do. Proverbs 13 says this, delayed hope makes the heart sick, but fulfilled desire is a tree of life. This verse is twisted a lot in our culture. That we think God is delaying his hope. And we look at someone who may have a, a sick heart and we don't question why their heart's sick. We just give them false hopes. Well, God wants you to be healed. Yes, God, God wants you to be healed. I don't know if it'll be now, later in your lifetime, or when you get to heaven, but he wants you to be healed. I just don't know when. And I'm gonna pray. We're gonna pray and see God and ask that if it be his will, that he would heal you, that it would be for his glory, not your glory, that you would live for him. That, that's what we want to pray for. And you say, well, delayed hope makes the heart sick. Why would God want us to be heart sick? Doesn't he just want to give us the desires of our hearts so we can have whatever he, we want? No, because if we do that, we'll end up making everybody else sick. And if there's anything we've learned in this pandemic, it's that. There are people that are waking up to the fact that they've been saying this is a fake pandemic for so long, and now they have loved ones who are dying and in hospital beds, and they're panicked. I'm seeing it on Facebook. Story after story. Read this week a town that they didn't take anything seriously. They were a rural town of about a thousand people. We don't care. We'll be fine. They had an outbreak and they are losing people like crazy because the nearest hospital is like an hour away. Like, so does that mean we're, we're afraid? Nope. My hope isn't in this world. It's not in 
if I get to live long or live short. My hope is in Christ. It's, it's in him. And delayed hope does make the heart sick, but it drives us to ask him to heal us. Not to just give us what we want, because if delayed hope makes the heart sick, well, then I don't want people's hearts to be sick, so I'll just give people what they want. Here's a drug, here's this, here's that, to make yourself happy while you wait. Look at what 2 Peter says. He says, dear friends, don't let this one thing escape you with the Lord. One day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay in his promise, as some understand delay but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God says, do you want to know why there's a delay in me coming back? Because I don't want want you to perish. I, I keep extending your life so that you might have more time to repent. You might have more time to to tell people about who I am. That's the point of an extended life because really it doesn't matter how long your life goes. In the end, it's nothing anyway. You die and get stuck in the ground. That's it. But he says, if you have hope in me, you know that that message isn't depressing. It's not the end all be all. There's a hope that we can cling to. You know, this life longs, causes us to long for fixes. I need a fix for this problem, for that problem. I I don't deserve this. I do deserve this. That's what marketing is all about, is trying to get us to tell people what the fix we need is and demand it. That's what marketing is. Is it wrong to find healing and help and help people? No. But it is wrong to give them a false hope. To let them know that, hey, it's temporary, it's not permanent, and yes, we're helping you, but you have to recognize that there's a deeper hope. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy Chapter 6, he says, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. It's God who provides us and tells us how to enjoy things, the proper way to do things. He says, instruct those who are rich. And you think, whoo, man, I'm glad that's not me. I'm glad I'm not rich. Really? 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 The majority of the world doesn't even have health care. <laughs> the majority of the world probably won't eat today or is thinking about where they're going to eat and how they're going to get it. We have enough food, most of us, in our cupboards to last us a week. Like, we, by all worldly standards throughout human history, we are rich people. And I'm grateful for that, and I celebrate what God has done, and I pray that I'm not arrogant. I pray that in the midst of that, I still set my hope that all of this is uncertain, that it could all be gone in a moment. Mount St. Helens, gone in an instant. He goes on and he says, instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good reserve for the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is real. You see, there's a lot of people running around living a false hope, a false life. And God says, I want you to have real life. You know, there are two chemicals that work in your body. And they're the hope chemicals. They're dopamine and serotonin. Dopamine and serotonin are two of the strongest chemicals in the human body. They've been there since the beginning. 
They've always been there, and, and our bodies respond to those things. Serotonin is the thing that gives us kind of that sense of calm and peace, and dopamine is the thing that gives us that sense of pleasure, of like, yes. And what can happen in life is that when we don't learn how to find our hope and our pleasure and our peace in Christ, then what happens is we become addicts of our own flesh, that we're taking dopamine hits and, ser- and serotonin problems and we begin to create those. And the way you're raised and the life you live and the circumstances of your life can really impact how your body learns to cope with itself and cope with this dopamine-serotonin battle that's happening in your body. It's a normal response. And we have figured that out in this modern age, and now we're trying to prescribe people the right medicines, and then we find out, well, we can give them a medicine now, but you got to come back in a month, because if your circumstances of your life change, it changes your medicine levels. I'm not against medication. It's necessary sometimes. I take medication. I'm not bashing that. What I'm saying is, is what happens is we keep pumping ourselves full of stuff instead of going through a detox process to detox ourselves from the hopes we have in riches, the hopes we have in relationships, all these hopes that we've built up that say, if God's with me, then this is how it's all going to work out. And then when it doesn't, we need a hit. We need a fix. Because God isn't enough. And God says, I want you to find your hope in me. I want you to trust in me. And it's going to take, Romans 12, Paul says, you're going to have to go through the renewing of your mind as a living sacrifice. I went to a detox center this week and walked through a detox facility and watched people shaking, trembling, screaming. Because their body was railing from reeling from the the mess that was in them. And they were sick, literally sick. What we just read, hope deferred is sick. They were sick, they were vomit. It was a disaster because they had trained their body to hope in something that was killing them. We've got to be very careful as Christians that we're not finding our hope in something that's going to end up killing us. That we're finding our hope in the simplicity of the message of childlike faith, that Jesus came as a child, that that Simeon and Anna said, this baby born will deliver the world. That's the beauty. That's the real life. Does that mean I don't get help? No, you do get help. Detox is very important for people that are addicted. You need medical doctors to watch that process so you don't die as your body's going through withdrawal. Here's the problem. We don't think that that's the experience we should have spiritually. We only think that's the experience we should have physically if we're really an addict. But there is a spiritual detox that you go through when you begin to trust God and read the scriptures and start asking him to change you. It is a spiritual detox that sometimes feels like you're dying. It just is like this wrestling of, and it it kills you inside. And God's like, I am with you. Just like the doctors are there for the detox, Jesus says, I am telling you, I am with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I want to be with you through this process the rest of your life. Why? Because I want to get you through detox. I want to get you healthy and whole so that I can show people my glory of what I did in your life. That's the gospel message of hope that we have. 
Our problem is, my problem is, oftentimes I don't see myself as as an addict. I see myself as I'm not as bad as that guy. No, we all are. Look at what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, we also have obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. In other words, it's not ourselves that do it. We've gained access to the detox center and to the treatments we need and to the person that can help us because that's what Jesus did. He came and did what we couldn't do for ourselves. And it says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, our hope is rejoicing in God's glory, not our circumstantial glory. Not that it's going to work out the way we want, but we know that God says it'll work out the way he wants. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. Why? Because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. He's like, God wants to pour out his hope, pour out his love, and pour all of that into you. But there is a process of learning to stop giving glory to the world and yourself, but to give glory to him, to see things his way for his glory. And as you go through that, you begin to rejoice when the problems come not be upset about them. Because you recognize that that's what you did. You rejoiced in your affliction, Jesus. You endured on my behalf. You had the character that no one else in the face of the planet has ever had. And that character produced the hope for the world. And we know that you won't disappoint us. Romans 8 goes on to Romans 8 says this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as our first fruits. That's referring back to the Feast of Weeks. He says, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, yet hope that is not, or hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. See, everybody wants God to do what they want to see. Well, if God was so real, why doesn't he appear in the clouds? Because you wouldn't believe him if he did, and you'd only believe for the next miracle you want. And then the next miracle, and and if God's not doing what you want him to do, well, I can't believe. And Paul is saying, look, you need to be not ashamed of the fact that this is the truth, that we hope for something that we can't fully understand and fully see, but it's real. Romans 15 says, therefore, because of this hope that we have, accept one another, just as the Messiah also accepted you to the glory of God. Now, this accepting of one another, the term one another, whenever you see that used in Scripture, is talking about believers. Last week, we talked about believers, non-believers, what Paul was saying and how we interact with believers, non-believers, right? We, We unpacked that last week. Go back and listen to the podcast. He says, but we accept those that are one another's, those that are placing their hope in Christ and his future and what he's going to do, we look to say, yeah, let's, let's glory t- about God in those things. And then he says, for I say that the Messiah became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers. In other words, he put himself fully under the law so that he could uphold all the promises of God to those who broke the law. And, and then he goes, And so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. 
As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles, and I will sing psalms to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. Again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. All people should praise him. In other words, Paul writes, and he says, look, the reason we look to, to encourage one another and spur one another on and, is because we're all going to the same direction. <laughs> praise and thanksgiving. He goes on and he says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, for now we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. You see, you can have faith and you can have hope, but love defines what your faith and hope really is in. Do you really love God? Do you? Do you really find your, your hope in God? Well, then it'll show up in your love for him. Your love for his ways, that you believe that he is actually present in a love relationship with you. And you have faith in that, you have hope in that, and then that affects the way you do love in your life. Love for yourself, love for others, love for him, it affects it all. Paul goes on, says, or in Luke, this is what Jesus said, he says, I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all things take place. He's talking about the generation he was in and the things of the Messiah of Jesus dying and resurrection. Verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Remember, Paul was saying, have hope in the scriptures when he writes Romans 15. And Jesus is saying, find hope in the word. Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing, drunkenness, and worries of life, or that day will come on you unexpectedly like a trap. For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth. But be alert at all times, praying that you might have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus says, you're going to go through it. You're not going to be just taken out of it. You're going to go through these things, and the reason is because I'm trying to show the people around you who I am. They're living in carousing and drunkenness and worries and all these things, and I'm telling you, you don't have to live like that. You can have a peace in me that, that, that will take you through this life. As we wrap up, Romans 15 says this. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear. The one who rises to rule the Gentiles, that means the nations, everyone, and the Gentiles will hope in him. A world that doesn't know him, a world that rejects him, a world that's in a mess is going to find hope in him. Verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear. Simeon and Anna said the root of Jesse has appeared. This is the root. The seed has begun to take root. He's going to grow. He's going to be cut down. He's going to be hung on a tree. But he's going to come back again. And God says, we need to ask the question where our hope really is. And you ready for this? He says, if you truly find your hope in me, the key evidence of that is where you find your joy and your peace. 
Where is your joy and peace really found? Is it in him? Or the second that something doesn't work out and challenges your joy or your happiness or your peace, you're flying off the handle with God. How dare you? What are you doing? You don't know how much I've been through. But do we pause and recognize the fact that we live in a world that is absolutely hopeless. It's, it's like Mount St. Helens. It's waiting. This world is just waiting to explode every day. Something new, ready to explode. There are relationships you're in, relationships at work, relationships at home that feel like you're sitting on a powder keg all day long and one more thing is just gonna cause it to explode. And what that reveals isn't about your relationship. It reveals your own heart. It reveals the fact that even if it does explode, it doesn't matter. I have joy and peace in him, and I'm not going to ignore what's going on. I'm not going to be afraid to confront it. I'm not going to be afraid to tell people, you're not finding your hope in God. Why? Because I want you to overflow with the hope that Simeon and Anna had. They had all the hope to live their whole life serving God humbly. And God in his mercy allowed them to see the hope of the Messiah. And when he showed up, their joy and their peace overflowed. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to be people who have the same heart for Jesus' second coming. As much as Simeon and Anna did for his first. And Paul is saying, if you want that, here's what it looks like in Romans. Here's what the layout looks like. And I'm telling you, it's a hope worth striving for. Let me pray for us. Father, we bow before you this morning. First, we just admit our hopelessness. Lord, my works, my ability to control, my ability to fix things according to your words, are like filthy rags. But your ability to work through me to cleanse those rags and to bandage my wounds and then to use those wounds to glorify and talk about who you are and what you've done to heal and to change and the hope that we can have in you, that's what we should be about. Father, I pray this morning for anyone here who's struggling with hope. Maybe they have chemical imbalances. Maybe they have an addiction. Maybe, maybe there's a relationship that just seems hopeless. Father, I pray that they would see that if they know you, that there is hope in you. And that the hope that's gonna fix all those other things is them leaning into your word, leaning into the truth about who you are and believing you above everything else and leaning into your people, leaning into the body of Christ so that we can sing together, we can pray together, we can... We can celebrate the fact that we're waiting for a hope just like Simeon and Anna were waiting. Lord, I thank you that you've moved the temple not to a place we have to go to, but you've moved it to the human heart so that where two or more are gathered in your name with your hope that we can smile, we can find joy even in the midst of our afflictions and our sufferings, in the midst of our past mistakes and our sins. So Father, I pray this is the season that we talk about peace and joy and hope. Lord, I pray that you would show people that it's found 
in you and would you use us to be your mouthpieces like Simeon and Anna to tell the world that we've found the Messiah, we've found the Savior, we've found the hope and to not be ashamed, to not be ashamed. So Lord, if anyone here needs to just say, I'm, I'm hopeless, I need you, I pray that they would make that decision to maybe invite you in for the first time and for those of us who are believers who who've picked up other things to find our hopes in, I I pray that we would surrender those to you. Not for our own well-being only, but for your glory and for the well-being of others. We praise you. We thank you for this message this morning. We thank you that you love us, that you gave your life, that you came and you lived a life to show us what hope really looks like. Help us not be deceived, but to trust in you and trust in your word that reveals the true hope. Amen.